It's Tuesday, June 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After the president announced that there would be mass deportations coming over the weekend, he decided to delay planned immigration raids for two weeks to give Democrats time to change asylum laws. This comes as we find out that the government has had to move almost 300 migrant children from a remote border patrol station in Texas due to poor conditions. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the latest immigration news. Next, as tensions have begun running high since Iran shot down an unmanned American drone, President Trump is leveling new sanctions against Iranian leaders. President Trump has previously called off a military strike and thought that this was a far more proportionate response. Brian Bender, defense editor for Politico, joins us for what to expect from these sanctions and how we got here. Finally, there's been another fight that has gone viral. This one includes parents and coaches at a youth baseball game in Lakewood, Colorado. The players were all seven-year-olds, and the parents were upset with a call made by the umpire, who was 13. Six adults have been cited in this fight so far. Jason Gay, sports columnist for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about why parents get so angry. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I can't put someone in a bed that does not exist in our shelters, and we're working at historic levels of placing kids. We want to have zero kids in our care. Joining us now is Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about immigration. The president chose to delay these immigration raids he had announced, and he said he was giving Democrats two weeks to change asylum laws. As uh, everybody may remember, he had tweeted out that big mass deportations were coming next week. This was all last week. We were getting ready for things to start happening on Sunday of this past week. And then uh, just like that, with another tweet, the president canceled everything. What do we know about how this all played out? The president was getting pressure from a lot of folks, not the least of whom was the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, asking that this not happen. Ultimately, the the information had been out and sort of public for a week since the president tweeted. And then the Washington Post had a story specifically saying it's going to happen Sunday. Here's a list of the cities. And then a variety of other cities joined that list. Effectively, the president stood down for presumably a handful of reasons, not including the least of which, I guess, is questions from ICE about historically they don't promote their their operations in advance for officer safety. They also don't want to let people know that they're coming for them. They like the element of surprise. So a week's head start and lots of chatter from the new acting ICE director put a lot of focus on this. So I don't know that it was a surprise that it was called off. It could have gone either way because things change on a dime in this administration. So let's talk about that a little bit. Los Angeles, Chicago, Baltimore, Miami were some of the big cities that were anticipating raids. But let's talk about how these things actually happen and play out. These ICE agents are doing some research. They're trying to track down these people that have received final deportation orders, and then they try to stake them out and catch them when they can. But that's not always how it works. And a lot of times when they're trying to find these people, they don't. Either the address is wrong or something like that. So telegraphing this a week in advance could really hinder some of these operations. ICE will often spend, you know, their fugitive operations teams or who are part of the enforcement or removal operations, they'll spend days, if not weeks, sometimes surveilling a location, trying to determine, you know, when's the best time? Is this person still there? And sort of build a case of evidence that 
the person is there so that you, you know, you're going to go spend the resources to, to try to find them on any particular given day. Telegraphing it isn't generally something they do. I've not seen it other than the president making, you know, tweet proclamations as he did last week. But historically, you know, even when they've done all this homework, they'll show up at a building and, and somebody's not there. Or in some cases, they just won't open the door. I was yeah. with ICE in February 2018. They knocked on a door. A woman peered through the window and said the man they were looking for wasn't there. The ICE officer said, but he's standing right there. I can see him through the window. And she said, that's not him. They had this back and forth. ICE believed it was him. And she said, I'm just not letting you in. You're ICE. And without a judicial warrant, without a criminal arrest warrant, there's not much you can do. The people inside the house don't have to open the door. And ICE can't go in without a criminal warrant. And a lot of immigrant activists and people in these communities, they try to spread that word out because legally they do not have to open the door unless there is a criminal warrant, which a lot of times that's not what they have with these final deportation orders. So that's always about getting the word out. And even with these new raids being called off by the president, all these immigrant activists and people in the community are still mobilizing for this stuff, getting people ready for what is presumably going to come anyways. The president said at the request of Democrats, you mentioned at the beginning that Nancy Pelosi was being very forced telling him to not do this. But we've had you on many times to talk about all of the problems going on at the border. One of the other things is the overcrowding in a lot of these detention centers. We just got word that there was one facility near El Paso that basically there was 300 children in there in poor living conditions, and they had to remove them all out of there. What the Border Patrol in El Paso had been doing is using the Clint Station, which is east of El Paso, as the central processing for all of the kids from the sector. The sector is huge. It stretches from the El Paso area, the two westernmost counties of Texas, all the way into New Mexico. And they were using this station in Clint, Texas, as, as again, the, the central processing for all of the kids. And at this stage, they've removed those children out in the wake of an Associated Press report about what lawyers found when they went in and surveyed the conditions and spoke to some of the children. There were lots of reports of illness and kids basically living in a filth. They didn't have some basic necessities that the lawyers felt were necessary. Soap, toothbrushes, change of clothes, fresh diapers, those sorts of things. And there's no parents in there with these kids. It's just kids. Yes. There were reports of some kids of the reports, taking care of kids. That's exactly what I was going to say. Some of the reports were the kids just inconsolable, you know, trying to soothe one another, taking care of each other. And right. it was just kind of a lot of chaos going on in there. But this does right. call to to the issue of funding. There's not a lot of funding for these places that have been overcrowded. What's happening right now is that the Border Patrol stations are not designed to house people overnight, let alone multiple days. And in recent months, Border Patrol had reported 72 hours plus. We've seen families transferred among Border Patrol stations over the course of five or six days. These kids had been in custody for 27 days. That's well beyond what is allowed under the Flores Agreement about how children are supposed to be kept in government care or custody. Border Patrol's perspective on this has long been, we can only move people when there's some place to move them to. And in the case of children, they are to be transferred to the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee Resettlement. They're also overloaded and backlogged. So it funnels back into this pipeline where there's no movement within these stations. It's also happening with adults. There was an inspector general report, sort of an internal watchdog report on conditions, again, within the El Paso sector of adults being held in cells 
for days or weeks in standing room conditions. In one instance, at least one adult stood on a toilet to get above everybody and get some air, wow. if you will. And they've had people outside under a bridge. Things are not good. Border Patrol will tell you it's, it's, it's a resource issue. Again, these facilities, not to defend the agency or, or carry their water, it's, that's their job, but these facilities were designed in the 90s. They were designed when the volume of border crossers being apprehended were almost all adults, almost all single men from Mexico. And in that case, you can turn those folks right around after you take their fingerprints, take their photo and move them back to Mexico, quickly removing them. You cannot yeah. do that with children. You cannot do that with migrants who are not from Mexico, generally speaking. You know, the Remain in Mexico plan where the U.S. government is now sending some people back to Mexico to wait out their immigration hearings. But generally speaking, you can't just release people. You particularly yeah. cannot just release children. So what's happening, again, is this backlog of, of kids staying in a holding facility that's designed for an hours-long stay, now experiencing a month-long stay. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Today's action follows a series of aggressive behaviors by the Iranian regime in recent weeks, including shooting down of U.S. drones. You shot down the drone. It's, uh, I guess everyone uh, saw that one and uh, many other things. Joining us now is Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico. We found out that the president had ordered some type of retaliatory strike, but then called that off. And it leads us to where we are right now. The president is imposing new sanctions on Iran's supreme leader and a few other Iranian leaders. Tell us about what the president said about these new sanctions. These sanctions are intended to directly target the top leadership of the regime. So Ayatollah Khomeini and other members of the leading theocracy there, and by targeting them financially. So where they might have overseas bank accounts, that sort of thing, so that they are personally feeling the pain of these sanctions. How much of a difference this will make, it's hard to know. I mean, one wonders why the leadership of the regime hasn't been sanctioned already. I'm always amazed at how we can keep tightening sanctions when they're already tightened. Yeah, that's what I was was seeing a lot, too, is like there's not many more places we can impose sanctions on Iran, the people tend to end up feeling it more than the leadership anyway. So this was maybe in that effort to make the leadership feel a little bit more, just target them personally. Right. I think the intention here is to try and inflict some pain directly on the leaders of the regime. And it comes on top of some other sanctions more recently that are meant, for example, to stifle their oil production, their oil sales by, for example, sanctioning other countries that purchase oil from Iran. And it's pretty clear the regime is already been feeling the impacts of that. So you know, the president here, I think, is trying to be both the good cop and the bad cop. And by that, I mean clearly threatening military action. He hasn't carried it out, but threatening it should Iran continue to take some of these actions like shooting down the drone, levying more sanctions, but at the same time, holding out the carrot, if you will, of potentially holding talks negotiating some way forward. So I think the president, by deciding to strike and then not striking, is also trying to send a message that he's willing to find a way out of this 
short of military action. Yeah, and the president does that a lot where he's very forceful on some things and then tries to offer some type of silver lining. He said, I look forward to talking with them and lifting sanctions because they can become a peaceful, prosperous, productive nation. He said the same thing about North Korea when he was talking about these sanctions. He said, I say the same thing about North Korea. They can be prosperous and all this stuff. They just have to follow the right path with us on this. So the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said that these new sanctions would lock up billions of dollars for the leaders. Let's talk a little bit more about the military action because the president, by all accounts, had something ready to go. The jets could scramble at any moment, but then he called off an attack on uh, Iranian targets because he said that it wouldn't have been proportional to what they did. They shot down an unmanned drone. Some of the military officials said there might have been 150 deaths if we had commenced with some type of military action. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know the sequence here of when the president decided to change his mind, but clearly he did. I mean, he was advised probably by some of his close confidants that we needed to take some action in response to the shoot down of this drone. It sounds like he gave the go ahead for one of those responses. I think the president himself said there were three targets that were going to be hit. Presumably they were military targets. And then at some point before they launched the weapons, he decided to pull it back. And, you know, on top of that, I think it was a day or two later, it came out that the administration was suspicious that maybe the shoot down of the drone was not ordered by the top leadership of the Iranian government. And so that was also seen, I think, as a sign that the president was trying to signal to the Iranians, again, there's a way out of this short of a military confrontation by throwing out the possibility that maybe there are different factions inside Iran that are not all on the same page. And the president didn't strike because it wasn't clear that the leaders had wanted to get into it. A military confrontation. The tensions had just been escalating for a long time now. We left the Iran nuclear deal. There was tanker attacks, first round of them. There was a second round of tanker attacks. Iran announced that they'd be breaching their uranium enrichment levels. Then this drone attack happened. The Iranians keep maintaining that the drone was in their airspace. We've provided evidence contrary to that. The president announced this attack, then he took it back. What is the Iranian leadership thinking of how we're conducting ourselves throughout all of this? Well, this latest back and forth and war footing, if you will, between the United States and Iran, it dates back, most people would agree, to when the president in 2017 decides to pull out of the nuclear agreement between Iran and other world powers. Since then, the Iranians have been more threatening. They've taken more actions including the ones you mentioned. And I think the Iranians are ratcheting things up because they really are feeling the pain of these new sanctions, this series of new sanctions that the Trump administration has been implementing since it pulled out of the nuclear deal some two years ago. And so I think the Iranians want to talk. They want to find some diplomatic solution here. I don't think the Iranian leadership wants a full-blown war with the United States. I don't think anybody wants that. But the Iranian regime needs to do something because these sanctions are affecting the economy. They are affecting the welfare of the people in Iran. And eventually it's going to come home to roost. At least that's what the Iranian leadership fears. So I think they are prodding the United States, prodding the president, pushing him to see how far they can go to get the president to agree to sit down and work out some sort of new deal that would potentially lift some of these damaging sanctions. But it's a very risky game because they could push too far, as they almost did last week by shooting down this drone yeah, exactly. and set in motion even more military action that nobody thinks would end well. Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I issued it to the entire field and then everyone just started yelling and screaming and it just got really chaotic. Joining us now is Jason Gay, sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal. 
This is another case of adults fighting at a youth baseball game. This was happening in Lakewood, Colorado. It started going viral last week after the video of parents and other adults, coaches, I think were also involved, started brawling out right in front of this youth baseball game. The crazy thing about it was that these were seven-year-old kids. And as you noted in your piece, one of the just most heartbreaking parts of this is when those seven-year-old kids are running away from these parents. They don't want to be obviously involved in the fight, but that should never be taking place. Talk to us a little bit about this story, and then we'll get into some broader points about parents fighting at games. I've not really seen a video of this nature in recent memory just because of the fact that you have multiple parents throwing multiple haymakers. And I shouldn't laugh there because it is really disturbing. And you mentioned, and I know the column, that the most disturbing part of this is these are seven-year-old children who are running off the field frightened at the violence that they're seeing happening from adults, from parents, from people that they are entrusting themselves to. It's just an incredibly embarrassing, mortifying event involving people who should know much better. There's absolutely no circumstance to warrant that kind of behavior. It's just terrible. But you laugh, but I think we all kind of have this reaction at first because it's you laugh at the stupidity of it, maybe. It's like, How can these parents really do this? And so this started, there was a boy named Josh Cordova. He's the 13-year-old umpire. He's making the calls here for this game. I guess he made a call that some of the parents and coaches didn't like. He said that coaches were getting in in his face saying, you got to overturn this call. And then somebody dropped an F-bomb. And that's when he said, okay, everybody calm down. Stop using this language in front of the seven-year-old kids. And then that's when everything escalated even more. Then the parents started fighting. And then, as you said, haymakers started getting thrown. He's the person who's acting the most like the adult here. He's the person who acquitted himself the best. He kept his composure. He was somebody who was thrust into a really difficult spot and really, again, sort of acted like the sole adult in the room or on the field. He did an interview with the local news there in Colorado. And and to your point about being the adult there, the 13-year-old umpire, here's a short clip of what he had to say about the parents. I should not have to tell a grown man to how to act around little kids. It was kind of intimidating, and I was trying to take a step back from the entire situation, but they just kept following me and getting closer. What is the big problem with the parents and adults? You mentioned your article, this notion of over-seriousness. You know, these are kids. They're just starting out to even see if they like playing baseball. What's going on with these parents? The people who are involved in this fracas have lost any sense of perspective on what they were actually watching. This was a game involving children. The stakes are effectively meaningless. The moments that are unfair in this game will be forgotten within minutes of the end of the game. There's absolutely nothing riding on this contest. And so it does show that perspective can get lost very quickly among parents at a youth sports event. We've heard all, of course, and we've probably seen some of it ourselves, parents living vicariously through their children as athletes. It just seems absurd, the notion that you could ever get agitated to the point that you would be willing to that are violence against another human being. I mean, there's just, it's so beyond the pale that to even discuss it rationally, like you and I are doing, <laughs> trying to, yeah, exactly. Too much respect. The fact of the matter is that what we really should be doing is teaching kids about what sports can do for them in terms of its applications to other things. And I think one of the things that sports can really do is make people better adjusted to the idea of failure and disappointment. Think about the sport of baseball. It's basically a failure-based sport. The most <laughs> successful hitters in the history of the game make an out about 70% of the time, right? Batting 300 is a great metric of baseball hitting greatness. That means that 70% of the time, 
you're failing. So you have to get comfortable with the idea of disappointment and things not always going your way. And sometimes an outfielder leaping over the fence and robbing you of a home run. You know what that's a perfect metaphor for? The rest of life, where things aren't always fair, where things don't always work out. And quite frankly, things don't work out almost as often as they do work out. So I think that kind of perspective is more important than anything we could possibly be ever getting from the actual playing of the game. Because candidly, most of us, if not very close to all of us, are not going to be watching our children playing professional sports on the stands. That's an awfully hard ask. That's a perfect point that all these parents in Colorado really need to learn about this whole situation. Jason Gay, sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. hope the next time we come back, it'll be a lot happier story than this kind of nonsense, right? I agree. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.